it is a privilege today uh, to have Pastor C.J. Mahaney feed us from God's Word. He's a no stranger to our church family. If you've been in our church for a while, then you know the name. I've quoted him for years and years and years and years. So many of you have been impacted by his books, The Cross-Centered Life, Humility, and so many others. And some of you heard him preach here this past summer, so I know I don't need to give a big introduction. But I do want you to know, in all humility, when I ask him what I should say, he said, just simply say, uh, you're my friend, and I'm a pastor of Sovereign Grace Church in Louisville, but he's so much more than that. God has used him greatly. He's one of a handful of men, apart from my dad and the Lord Jesus Christ, that God has used to shape me and stir me long before I'd ever met him, just through his preaching just through listening to him, through reading him. It's one thing for someone to have sound doctrine. And praise God, there's plenty of them out there. But you combine sound doctrine with humility and a life of character and perseverance in the face of trouble and a passion that is contagious, that you just catch. God has used him to stir me to stay passionate for the kingdom, for the church of Jesus Christ, to go hard after Jesus Christ, And so it's a privilege to have Pastor C.J. Mahaney feed my church family from God's word. Help me welcome C.J. this morning. Thank you very much. It It is an honor. It is an honor to address you. It is an honor to stand here. And your lead pastor has given me the gift of his friendship, for which I am deeply grateful. And he, a few months ago, served the church where I serve and came and preached. And thank you for your unselfishness in supporting him when he ventures out from here. His preference would be to remain here. Uh, But he serves other churches and he served our church big time. It won't surprise you to hear the hit the message out of the park. The church within a matter of like one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi just loved him. uh, And I am just so grateful for our ongoing friendship and for this invitation. A joy to be here. Please turn in your Bible to the letter of Galatians chapter 4. And the title of this message is Knowing God... As father, understanding the doctrine of adoption. And you need to know, this was the request of your lead pastor. He asked me to preach on this message. He asked me to preach all three services on this message. If you (laughs) experienced the last time I was with you, I'd prefer to preach a different message each service. But I am quite happy to preach this message, all three services in service of him. So this message is his choice, it's a reflection of his leadership, it's a reflection of his care for you. Galatians chapter 4, I will begin reading in verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem Deem those who were under the law so that we 
might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. On March 2nd, we celebrated the fourth anniversary of welcoming into our family Jude and Sophie, our two grandchildren adopted from Ethiopia. They were adopted by our daughter Nicole and our son-in-law Steve, and their arrival from Ethiopia was, well, was one of the happiest days of our lives and has been only exceeded by the joy they have brought us over the last four years. I observe, I observe the fruit and effect of adoption whenever our family gathers. Adoption is a compassionate, unselfish act. It's a deeply moving, life-changing reality. But most profoundly, it is a picture, it is a picture of something even more significant. As, as moving as human adoption is, it is but a picture of an even greater reality, divine adoption. In his classic book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer explains the uh, profound significance of divine adoption when he writes, what is a Christian, he poses. What is a Christian? Well, the question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. The truth of our adoption gives us the deepest insights that the New Testament affords into the greatness of God's love. Were I asked to focus the New Testament message in three words, my proposal would be adoption through propitiation. And I do not expect ever to meet a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. So according to Dr. Packer, the doctrine of adoption is the richest answer to the question, what is a Christian? And the truth of adoption gives us the deepest insights into the greatness of God's love. And, and this, this, would, this would form my hope for this message this morning. Here's my, here's my hope this morning. Here's my hope. Here's what informs my prayer. It's my hope that each of you, each of you who have turned from your sins and trusted in the Savior's substitutionary sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, it is my hope and prayer that you would be freshly reminded of God's personal, particular, and passionate love for you as revealed in the doctrine of adoption. That's my hope. Over the past 42 years of ministry, I, I, I've interacted with many Christians who, who are not certain of God's love for them. They, they are not secure in his love for them. In, in light of the holiness of God and their sinfulness, they can be suspicious of God and suspicious of his love for them. They, they, they tend to think of God as merely tolerating them, often disappointed with them, doubts about God's love for them, dog them, and perhaps this morning, oh, perhaps you are one of them. If so, oh, if so, 
I pray that this passage and this message will become, oh, I pray this becomes a defining moment in your life, altering your view of God and convincing you of his love for you. Because it's, it's been my experience over the years that those Christians not convinced of God's love for them have been largely ignorant of the doctrine of adoption and introducing them to adopting grace has made a significant, might I say, even dramatic difference in their lives. It, it has, in effect, provided what Dr. Packer describes as the deepest insights the New Testament affords into the greatness of God's love. So, deeper insights, brothers and sisters, simply do not exist. <laughs> and here's another hope I have. Given the size of this congregation, it is also my hope that those present who are not Christians, and how grateful I am you are present, those present who are not Christians, who have not repented of your sins against God, who have not trusted in the person and work of Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Here's my hope for you this morning in my prayer. I pray that you would be convinced of God's love for you. I pray that you would turn from your sins and experience God's love through adopting grace. And I pray you do that this very day. So that's my hope. That informs my prayer. Three points that I want to draw your attention to, uh, each, I trust, drawn from this magnificent passage. Uh, and listen, we're going to move at warp speed through the first point so that we might give appropriate attention to points two and three. Point one, our prior condition, verses one through three. Our prior condition. In verses one through three, we are, we are reminded of our condition, reminded of our need prior to divine Adoption. Now, it, it's, it's no small challenge to begin in chapter 4. Uh, it's a challenge to begin in chapter 4 because it, it's, it's a little like arriving late at a gathering of friends. Conversation is already underway and you find yourself just trying to discern what they're talking about. So, so let, me, let me provide you with a little background so that we might accurately discern what Paul is talking about as we, in effect, listen in on his communication to the Galatians and discover this morning its relevance for us. The Galatian churches were made up primarily of Gentile Christians. Gentile Christians in the process of, in essence, deserting the gospel because of the influence of false teachers and teaching. It was as if a spell had been cast over them. Notice in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes there, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? The spell? Well, the spell was the often subtle and serious error of legalism. So they, having previously received the grace of God through the proclamation of the gospel, were being tempted to add to their faith, add to their faith in Christ, obedience to the Mosaic law as a means of securing their salvation. They were being told Christ was not enough. Obedience to the law was necessary, a necessary addition to Christ for their salvation. So by adding the law to Christ, that they were being seduced and deceived into the futile attempt of earning forgiveness from God, justification before God, acceptance by God through their obedience to the law of God. And this was a complete misunderstanding and misapplication of the law. It, it was a distortion of the law and it was a desertion from the gospel because the law was never meant to save from sin but instead to reveal sin in light of the holiness of God and reveal our need for a savior from our sin. 
So in chapter 3, Paul provides the Galatians with, with a survey, in effect, a survey of the history of the law. He informs them of the divine intent and purpose of the law in order to protect them from misunderstanding and misapplying the law. So note in verse, chapter 3, verse 19, why then the law? Why then the law? And we discover why in verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 24, so then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And that explanation of why then the law It continues in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, where Paul deploys yet another metaphor to illustrate why then the law. Israel, under the law, was like a child under the care of a guardian waiting for their inheritance. Although the inheritance belonged to them, they haven't come of age yet, so they cannot use it. And in this way, they are really no different than slaves. So, for the Jews... The law held them captive, imprisoned them, and was their guardian until Christ came in order that they might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. And so Paul is informing the Gentile Galatians about the temporary purpose and use of the law in this regard to show how foolish it is for them to base their relationship with God upon the law. And and while Paul's analogies refer to Israel under the law, there's just application to all people who seek to relate to God by law, obedience, performance, or in any way apart from the gospel of the grace of God revealed in Christ and Him crucified. The Galatians, the original recipients of this letter, they were Gentiles, not Jews. And prior to their conversion, they were largely ignorant of the law, but they were no less enslaved by their sin than those under the law. And so Paul describes their enslavement in verse 8. Note he writes, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature, (laughs) to those that by nature are not God's. So this is their pre-conversion condition. Prior to their conversion, they were enslaved to the idols of their creation and their imagination. They were enslaved to false gods. So, here's the argument. Whether it's the Jews who are imprisoned and enslaved by the law and their sin, or it's the Gentiles enslaved by their idolatry and sin, here's the point. All are enslaved. All were enslaved. And all are humanly incapable of altering this condition of enslavement. All are in need of saving a salvation that God graciously and entirely provides in Christ. So, By abandoning the gospel and subjecting themselves to the Mosaic law as, in effect, a means of salvation, that the Galatians were, in effect, listen, they were returning to a pre-conversion form of enslavement. So look at verse 9. Paul says to them, But now that you have come to know God, and I love this move, or rather to be known by God, as he accents sovereign grace and God's initiative, listen to this, "How, how can you turn back again? 
to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So for these Gentile Christians, their reliance now on the law for salvation, was it, was it, it was a different but similar form of enslavement that they experienced prior to their conversion. So prior to their conversion, they served false gods. And now following conversion, they've become enslaved again by subjecting themselves to the law as a means of salvation. Why, Paul asked, do you want to return to enslavement again? So, so no wonder he calls them out as foolish in chapter 3, verse 1. They were foolish because they were depending on what God intended to hold captive, in prison, function as a guardian, <laughs> prior to their conversion, prior to the proclamation of Christ and him crucified. The law was preparatory, and it was preparatory for the person and the work of Christ. The, the good and righteous law of God was never meant to be relied upon as a means of salvation. So properly understood, the law of God revealing the holiness of God and our sinfulness, it is a gracious gift to us, revealing our need and preparing us for the provision of a Savior and the gracious act of adoption. So our condition prior to conversion, whether one is Jew or Gentile, is enslavement to and by our sin. We are humanly incapable of altering this condition. We need divine intervention. That's what we need. We need divine intervention. We need divine provision. And it is, brothers and sisters, it is the action of God himself that changes the way people relate to him and that action is revealed beginning in verse 4. Point 2. God's decisive action. Verses 4 and 5. Oh my. He's, oh my. One, one can't read these verses. And one can't preach on these verses. Without being affected by these verses. Uh, because these verses reveal the gracious decisive action of God. In response to what? In response to our enslaved condition. So God's gracious provision for those enslaved by sin and imprisoned by the law is revealed in verses 4 and 5. We are enslaved and God graciously acts. And when he acts, everything changes. Everything changes. So in these words, and from these words, we, we, we discover that God has graciously intervened to address our sinful condition. Verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Oh my. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So while we are slaves to sin, incapable of altering our condition, God sends forth his son on behalf of enslaved sinners like you and me. So, brothers and sisters, just behold the love of God. Behold the love of God revealed through the initiative of God in sending forth his son for those who are enslaved by sin and imprisoned by the law. Charles Spurgeon writes of, of this announcement and this action in this way. He says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. Listen. We moved not towards the Lord, but the Lord towards us. 
I do not find that the world in repentance sought after its maker. No. But the offended God himself, in infinite compassion, broke the silence and came forth to bless his enemies. All good things begin with him. Oh, yes, they do. All good things begin with him. By the way, no good thing begins with us. Listen, God was not gracious to you because of something in you. It was his infinite compassion, indeed, that broke the silence to bless his enemies. And he sent forth his son. And the son sent forth by the father was uniquely qualified to be our savior. Here's some of his unique qualifications. Born of woman, born under the law. In order to be our savior, he must be like us, born of woman. And yet he must be unlike us, God the son perfectly fulfilling the law. So if he were not fully man, he could not have died in our place as our substitute. If he had not been a man, he could not have redeemed men. And if he didn't perfectly keep the law, he could not redeem us from the curse of the law. If he had not been a righteous and sinless man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous and sinful men. He was Truly God and fully man, the mediator between God and men. God the Son. Oh, behold him afresh this morning. God the Son, born of woman, perfectly kept the law and died a unique death as the substitute for sinners on the cross. And in verse 5, then Paul informs us of the purpose and the effect of the cross. Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law. To redeem those who were under the law. To redeem those who were held captive by law and sin. God, God sent forth his son with a most gracious purpose to liberate from imprisonment, <laughs> to liberate us from our imprisonment by the law and our enslavement to sin. So we were enslaved by sin, condemned by the law, objects of God's righteous and furious wrath. I, you, we, we needed someone to redeem us. Oh my, we needed someone to liberate us, to redeem us from our sin and the penalty for our sin. And lo and behold, It's the one we've offended who takes initiative and in infinite compassion takes action on behalf of enemies who are enslaved and sends forth his son to be our sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing substitute. God sent forth his son to endure the curse of the law, the wrath of God for for, for sinners like you and me so that we might be liberated from this curse and spared the penalty for our sins so that those who were once bound in slavery to sin and the consequences of sin are instead redeemed by the Savior's sacrifice for their sin. God sent forth his son to redeem. But notice, sentence isn't finished yet. Sentence isn't done. Not a period. So that. So that. 
so that we might receive adoption as, as sons. Oh my. You, you mean redemption wasn't the ultimate purpose? No. No, God sent forth his son with an atoning purpose and an adopting purpose. So that. He went beyond redemption to adoption. His purpose did not conclude with redemption. It actually culminated with adoption. He made, this is unthinkable. He made slaves into sons through the death of his son. And right here, right here, right in these words, we, we are we are encountering, you, you are about to encounter the deepest insight into the greatness of God's love that according to Dr. Packer, the New Testament affords. This, this, the deepest insight into the greatness of God's love, it's, it's really revealed in that preparatory phrase, so that. So that. Okay? So all the action previously described was so that he might take this action. So that we might receive adoption as sons. Well, here's what I think. If all the action of God previous was so that he might take this action, so that we might receive adoption as sons, well then, I I think we need to give appropriate time and attention to the grace of adoption. J.I. Packer also argues that the doctrine of adoption has been unduly neglected. I think this observation, I think it's accurate. It certainly applies to me. Uh, for, for years, I taught more, I taught much more on the doctrine of justification than I did on the doctrine of adoption. Now, so there is no misunderstanding, for there must be no misunderstanding. I don't think we should teach on the doctrine of justification less. No, no, not at all. Actually, the doctrine of justification must remain primary because all saving benefits depend on justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Adoption depends on justification. So I don't think we should teach on justification less, but I do think I should teach, we should teach more on adoption. And, and without separating Justification and adoption, we must distinguish between justification and adoption. We must distinguish between them because, surprise, they are not the same. They are not the same. We must distinguish between them because they are not the same. And we must distinguish between them so that we treasure this metaphor of adoption. And so that we feel the full effect of God's love revealed in and through this metaphor of Adoption. So, here's what I've done. I've asked Dr. Packer to return to help us understand the difference between justification and adoption because, because understanding the difference is critical. It's important for us to have the deepest insights into the greatness of God's love. So, here is what Dr. Packer has written. That justification, by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past, together with his acceptance for the future, is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel, is not in question. No, it is not. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. Yes, it does. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, And in our lucid moments, afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our maker. 
So we need the forgiveness of sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are the heart of the relationship. And then finally, this is his summation statement. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Oh, my goodness. Our friend John Piper has said that books don't change people's lives. Sentences do. And there's a couple sentences in that paragraph that have the potential of changing your life only because they are derived from this passage. Here's one of those sentences. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Oh my. So that, that, that sentence will help you to understand this passage. And it will help you to feel the full impact of this passage. Brothers and sisters, it is indeed a great thing to be right with God the judge through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. Oh my. It is indeed a great thing to be forgiven of sin. It is, a, it is indeed a great thing to be freed from fear of future wrath and condemnation. These are all great things. If, if, if the sermon ended today simply preaching on and celebrating the great things, the great effects of redemption, no one should leave here disappointed. Everybody should be happily singing and making their way to the car if the sermon was confined to the redemption from our sins and God's wrath that we have been liberated from. This is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater And that's Paul's burden in this passage. Paul's burden in this passage is that we understand and experience the greater. Because it is possible to understand the great thing he sent forth his son to redeem and fail to comprehend, listen, the greater so that we might receive adoption as sons. So let me ask you. Let me ask you. Do the words affection? generosity, closeness. Do do those words describe your view of God? Do those words describe your experience of God? Well, if not, perhaps, perhaps you are ignorant of adopting grace because adopting grace is meant, adopting grace is meant to convince you of his love for you. It's meant, it's got, it's got, it's got work to do in your soul this morning. It's a metaphor, divinely inspired and deployed here, (laughs) to convince you of God's love for you, to convince you of his affection for you, his closeness with you, his generosity toward you. Listen, adopting grace 
is about being wanted. Personally wanted. Personally wanted by God, the Father. That's what adopting grace is about, being wanted. Adopting grace reveals his, his deep affection for sinners like you and me. Uh, listen, adopting grace will banish any suspicion you have about the Father's love for you. So, let me ask you, Christian, are you convinced of God's love for you? Oh, are you? Because if not, the implications are serious. If you are uncertain about the disposition of the Father's heart toward you, if you're uncertain about his disposition towards you, it, 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 will, it will affect everything. You, you can't confine this. No, no. It, it will affect everything about you. If you aren't convinced of his love for you, then, then you will be vulnerable to all, ma- all manner of legalism and condemnation and introspection and discouragement and depression and despair. And there will be the distinct absence of any consistent joy in your life and you'll live life with a low-grade form of guilt and fear. All Christians are to be certain they are loved by God because, here's why, because all Christians have been adopted by God. All Christians are to be certain they're loved by God because all Christians have been adopted by God. All Christians are to be certain they are loved by God, but where you look for that certainty makes all the difference in whether you are convinced of this certainty. So let me ask you, where do you look? Where do you look in order to be convinced of God's love for you? And I'm asking you because we all have a certain impulse to look in the wrong place. We all have an impulse to look within ourselves. To find a reason for his love. And that impulse will not serve us. If you look within yourself in order to find some reason for his love, you won't find it there. Here's why you won't find it there. It doesn't exist there. It doesn't exist there. (laughs) If you look within, pretty much all you'll find is sin. That's what you'll find. Sin. The Puritan Thomas Watson wisely observed, we have enough in us to move God to correct us, but nothing to move him to adopt us. And then he just says, therefore exalt free grace. Begin the work of angels here. Bless him with your praises who hath blessed you in making you his sons and daughters. Oh, those are wise words, wise pastoral counsel. We have enough within us. What do you have? Enough within us to move God to correct? You have nothing to move him to adopt you. But we all have this impulse. We have this impulse to look within to find a reason for his love because, why? Because we have an arrogant desire to be worthy of his love. That's why. Arrogant desire to find in ourselves some reason to be deserving of his love. By the way, it's just, it's a false hope. It's a false hope you're going to discover something within you that inclined God to love you because there is not a thing within you or me that inclined God to love you or me. You might have noticed there is nothing flattering about our condition that we previously described and considered. Nothing flattering about us in that 
description of our condition prior to God's action and intervention. So, the more you look within, the more you're going to discover reasons for him to correct you, not to love you. And I really do think this, this, for, I really do think this forms a daily challenge for us uh, theologically, personally, and experientially. How can I be certain of his love for me since I am unworthy of his love? So how can I be certain if I'm unworthy? Now, this passage protects us from the, the arrogant, futile impulse to look within to find a reason for God's love for us. Because, well, because this passage directs our gaze away from ourselves and outside of ourselves to the heart of God, to the initiative of God, to the decisive action of God revealed in verses 4 and 5. So actually, this passage, it's a theological remedy for our subjective impulse. Theologian Donald McLeod explains this. He says, the word adoption refers not to a change in our character, but to a change in our status. It speaks of a revolution in our relationship with God. Yes, it does. As unbelieving sinners, we were utterly alienated from him. Total outsiders as far as his family was concerned. And now we belong. And by using the term adoption, Paul is using the formal, legal language to remind us that our membership of our new family is absolutely secure. It can never be undone any more than the adoption of Jude and Sophie can be undone. So in some 42 years now of pastoral ministry, I've just... I've just encountered, I've encountered many Christians in the midst of discouragement and depression and despair who, who, are, who are genuinely saying and lamenting, CJ, how could God love me? Why would God love me? Here's what they've assumed. Here's what they've concluded. I'm unworthy, therefore, I'm unloved. Now often, I seek to serve these folks by saying something unexpected to them. Rather than disagreeing with them and affirming something wonderful I observe about them, I say this to them. You know, I'm as perplexed as you are. I'm as perplexed as you are as to how God could possibly love you. I only know you a little and it's difficult for me to love you. I, I am clueless how God could love you. Now what's my purpose? Well, my purpose is to affectionately and humorously challenge their arrogant impulse to look in the wrong place. They're looking in the wrong place, and they want me to come alongside them and affirm something. They didn't find anything within. So could I join the search and possibly draw their attention to something they missed? That would mean they are worthy of God's love. Because if they're not worthy, they're not loved. Not true. No wonder they aren't amazed by grace. 
Instead, I want to direct their attention away from themselves. That's what I want to do. I want to direct their attention away from themselves and outside themselves. I want to direct their attention to a hill called Calvary. I want to direct their attention away from themselves and outside of themselves to God the Father who sent forth his Son to redeem them from their enslaved state to sin. So that, so that, so that, so that they might receive, not earn, not achieve, so that they might receive adoption as sons. That's what I want to draw their attention to. I want to to help them understand you are not worthy of his love. I want to inform them and remind them you will never be worthy of his love. You're not going to outgrow this. You're not going to one day grow worthy of his love. No. But I also want to say to them emphatically, here's the good news. Oh, it's not good news. It's great news. You will always be loved. You will always be loved because of God who adopted you. You will always be loved. Not because of something within you. No, no. His love isn't conditioned by something within you. God wasn't gracious to you because of moral superiority in your life that he discerned. No, he was gracious to you because he is gracious, not because of something he discerned in you. His his love is not conditioned by anything outside of his own heart. See, to understand adopting grace is, is really to be amazed by grace. Understanding adopting grace will protect you from becoming less, less amazed by grace as the years pass. Oh, to understand adopting grace is to be convinced of his love. Convinced of his love. So, if you aren't convinced, if you aren't convinced of his affection, if you aren't convinced of his generosity, if your experience isn't one of closeness, here's what I recommend. Familiarize yourself with the doctrine of adoption. I recommend you take a season. Just restrict your spiritual diet to this. If, if you don't have the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer, immediately after this meeting, run to the bookstore and buy that book. If you do have it, open to, if my memory serves me, chapter 9 on Sons of God. And just immerse yourself in the doctrine of adoption. Allow a godly scholar to hold your hand and lead you as you explore and study this topic. And as you study this doctrine, here's what you can anticipate. You can anticipate experiencing the affection of God for you. You can anticipate experiencing the closeness of God to you. You can expect to experience the generosity of God. That's what you can expect. Finally, Point three, the experience of adoption. The experience of adoption, verse six. So Paul now pivots and draws our attention to the person and work of the Spirit in relation to adoption. And by the way, let let, let it not escape our notice that all three members of the Trinity are involved in this. So once again, our attention is directed to the initiative of God, once again revealing the love of God. Of God. By the way, the, the, more, the more you are aware of the initiative of God in your salvation, the more you're going to be amazed by the grace of God. So our position, our status as adopted sons and daughters, that was secured by God's initiative and action in sending his son in verses 4 and 5. And now our experience of adoption is the result of God's initiative and action in sending his spirit 
in verse 6. So the gift of adoption is accomplished by the Son in verses 4 and 5, and it is applied to our lives by the Spirit in verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So that's a description of the special inaugural work of the Spirit. It's evident in each and every genuine conversion as one translates from slave to son, from fearing God as judge to now the unthinkable addressing God as father. There's always this new cry in the heart of the newly converted and that new cry of the Spirit is Abba, Father. That's the precious privilege. That's the common experience of all genuine Christians and that cry is evidence that we have received adopting grace. So in in this case, actually in verse 6, Paul does direct us to look within here, but this is theologically informed introspection for the purpose of discerning the distinct work of the Spirit in the form of the new cry, Abba, Father. And this cry testifies to our adoption, and this cry is meant to assure us of God's love for us. So actually this cry is a means of assurance. And here's what I hope this morning. Oh my, I hope and I prayed that that you will find assurance of his love for you in an unexpected place this morning. And and I'm going to ask my historical hero, Charles Spurgeon, to, to explain this to us and how this all goes down. Mr. Spurgeon said, I once knew a good woman who was the subject of many doubts. And when I got to the bottom of her doubt, it was this. She knew she loved Christ, but she was afraid he did not love her. Oh, I said, that is a doubt that will never trouble me, never, by any possibility. Because I am sure of this, that the heart is so corrupt naturally that love to God never did get there without God's putting it there. You may rest quite certain that if you love God, it is a fruit and not a root. It is the fruit of God's love to you and did not get there by the force of any goodness in you. You may conclude with absolute certainty that God loves you if you love God. Oh my, my. That's just wonderful. Listen, listen. There, there, there was an evidence of this just moments ago. Oh, I love singing with you. I love hearing you sing at different times during the singing. And we've been wonderfully led in singing. Uh, the content of the song, I, I just stopped because I just wanted to overhear you and be overwhelmed by your sincerity and your passion as the words of the gospel were resonating in your hearts. Listen, that, that is an evidence of this experience Paul is describing here in Galatians 4. Where, where one is singing sincerely and passionately, what explanation is there for that singing? There's only one explanation for that singing. God put that desire, God put that cry in that individual's heart. That is the only explanation for that singing. And if that is your experience this morning, it's meant to reassure you of God's love for you because God put it there. 
And surely you remember that prior to your conversion, the only singing you did was to yourself and about yourself. Listen, I was dramatically saved from the drug culture. I had wasted my life in attending concert after concert where I was just singing songs, self-exalting songs, songs that were all about personal pleasure and self-exaltation. What explanation was there for suddenly this long-haired guy showing up in a church context with a room filled with strangers lifting up his hand, singing songs like, well, they weren't songs as good as this, singing songs passionately to the Savior. What, like, what explanation is there for that? Well, it surely wasn't generated by any goodness in my heart. Where did that singing come from? It came from God. Who put it there? God did. How did he put it there? He adopted you. How did he do that? Oh, he sent his son to redeem you and liberate you so that he might adopt you. And then he sent his spirit in you to confirm that adoption so that he might convince you of his love for you. My! Listen, how does one... So sorry, I can't remain stationary when I'm talking about this stuff. I don't know how you can sit there. Feel free to get up and move around the room in this. My, my, my. Just pause for a minute. Remember your pre-conversion condition. Do you remember coming maybe to a church context like this pre-conversion? It's all really strange, wasn't it? I mean, if you're you're smart, oh, your pastor did such a good job leading you and preparing you for all that's going to take place next weekend. I I would only have one thing to add to his his brilliant presentation. You do need to prepare people for the singing. You're not used to that. You're not used to being in the midst of people singing like you singing. Man, this is loud. And wow, they repeat the songs. Didn't we just finish that song? It doesn't appear we did. We're going back and starting over again. (laughs) What the heck's going on here? This guy's hands are up. What in the world is happening? Just... Little prep would help people. Because I guess it shouldn't be difficult for you to remember if you were ever in a context like that. Well, what explanation is there for you finding your way to a context like that and you are singing loud and raising your hands and the words are resonating? Well, there's only one explanation. His spirit has been placed in you by who? God. Because you are worthy? No, you idiot. You are not. (laughs) Say that with full affection as if I'm dressing myself. You are unworthy. That's why you should be amazed. You should look within and say, how in the world did that get there? Oh, let me tell you how that got there. God put it there through the proclamation of the gospel because of the death of his son. He redeemed you and he adopted you and that cry will be there for the rest of your life and it will resonate throughout eternity. Abba, Father. So, verse 7. I love this. I love Paul's pivot here. So you are no longer a slave. It's like, it's like the general exhortation goes personal. It's not just, he's not generally exhorting anymore. No, no. So you. So it's like, 
if Paul were here today, it's like he's making eye contact. It's like he's saying, so you. So you. 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 So you. So you. So you. That's what's going on here. And by the way, behind Paul's eye contact, God is making eye contact. So you. You. No longer general. You. So you're not just supposed to be sitting here thinking, yeah, I mean, I'm a part of the church. No, no, you. Listen up. You. It's by name. Because God wants you to be certain of his love. He wants you to receive his love. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And notice though, the verse nail isn't finished yet. And if a son, then an heir. Oh my, what's up here? Well, in the ancient world, a father's inheritance could only be passed along to a son. Therefore, if a father didn't have a son, he would by necessity adopt so that he could have an heir. Try to take this in. Try to comprehend this. God didn't need to adopt sinners like us. Because the father had an heir. father had a son. So there was no need for the father to adopt sinners like you and me. And yet he did it. Revealing his love. Revealing the gracious nature of adoption. And we are sons. Therefore, we are heirs of God. Wow. Just staggering stuff. So as heirs, that means we're recipients of inheritance. What's the inheritance? Well, the inheritance would be obviously all God has promised. But it would be most importantly, God himself. Trevor Burke in his book on adoption says, we are not only heirs of what God has promised, but we, try to comprehend this, but we will inherit God. How do I get from a slave who is his enemy to a son who is an heir? And oh yeah, when the inheritance is read, you get me. Not love you? It's as if you can hear God say, uh, what more could I do to convince you? And please notice, the last two words are critical to notice too. Through God. Through God. Because one cannot be a son through human effort. One can only be a son through God. So the, the verse concludes most appropriately, drawing attention to God, not ourselves. Drawing attention away from ourselves and away from our adoption to God. All of this is through God and only because of God. Therefore, all glory should be assigned to God. Let's do that right now. Lord, we do, we assign all the glory, all the glory that we have been freshly reminded of in the gracious gift of adopting grace. We sign all the glory to you. It's only through you. Our contribution to all this is our sin that we needed to be redeemed from. Your contribution is everything. And we're overwhelmed. And we're convinced of your love. And we love to sing. We want to sing right now. But because I didn't stop soon enough, we can't sing right now. Right, Brad? We can't sing right now? We can't, huh? Cannot. Okay. So sorry. 
So, Lord, we sing as you go, sing as you go, sing as you go. It's an appropriate response. Amen.